0: one of the labels I wear is pastor. It's a label that sometimes I have to endure because as a pastor, sometimes when I run into uh, other Baptists or former Baptists, I always get the same joke from them. I can always tell when they're a Baptist because the first thing out of their mouth is, oh, you preacher? Yeah, what's it like to only work half a day a week? (laughs) Like I haven't heard that joke before. (laughs) Okay, but they want it. And then I just go, well, brother, are you Baptist? He goes, well, brother, I sure am. And uh, then there are times when uh, being a pastor is a bit of a drag because people will be smoking and they'll either douse their cigarette real quick or they'll put it behind their back. And I'm like, Dude, if the God's real, he can see the cigarette anyway, so I'm okay with it. It's a free country, you know. Don't do the whole back thing. That's just awkward for everybody. Then as a pastor because I wear this label, sometimes people feel a need to come up to me and tell me all the reasons why they don't go to the church. Oh, you you pastor, you know, well, you know, I haven't been to church in 24 years and, you know, and I got to tell you, and then I get the whole story with all the lurid details. I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't be in church either. I don't blame you, you know. So, so that's a, that's a label that I wear. Now there's a label that I used to embrace that I don't like anymore. And that was, that's the label evangelical. And let me explain that. Back in the 1980s, when I was a 20-year-old man, I loved the term evangelical. I embraced it. I was a card-carrying evangelical. They didn't issue cards, but that's the way I phrased it, okay? Because I was a student at Wheaton College, the Harvard of American evangelicalism, the school that had trained Mr. Billy Graham, Kapow! Mr. Crusade, Billy Graham, okay? So I was proud of being an evangelical, and I loved it, and I embraced it, and I would identify with it. And then somewhere in the 1990s, like James Dobson and a bunch of other people that were really politically involved kind of ruined the term for me. And now, now, if you say you're an evangelical Christian, do you know what comes to most Americans' minds? They're the top two things that uh, 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 Kinnaman, the Barna Group, has done research on this, and they say, what comes to mind when, you, when I say evangelical Christian? You know what the top two things are? Judgmental and hypocritical. Like, I want to have those labels on me, too. So it's like, ugh, okay? And in 2012, labels persist. We have all kinds of labels. Are you still in school? When I was in school, we had jocks and nerds. I'm told now that you're not a nerd, you're a geek. What are some other school terms that are thrown around? Yes? Elementary idiot. idiot. There you go. Okay, yep. (laughs) Dang. See? And that's one of those, there's, labels can be so encouraging like that, okay? Um, And there are all kinds of labels that you've chosen to wear, a kraut, Sith lord, uh, what are some other labels? <laughs> nurturer, Nurturer, Mom, Spry, Incognito, Encouraging. Oh, Farmer, yep, mm-hmm. had to pass that. Huge nerd, not just small nerd, but huge nerd. Some other labels in the back that you chose on your own? I can't read that far back. Just call them out. Healthy, Healthy. Grumpy, yeah, I put one here, Crotchety, because <laughs> I just feel that way sometimes. And so it is with labels. And that's how labels work. Labels are an attempt to describe the contents on, of what's inside. It's a futile attempt at best because we humans are complicated. I mean, we are complicated. And one label is rarely enough to really accurately describe the contents. Today, I want to talk about a particular set of labels. I want to talk about the label of homosexual, gay, lesbian. Those are some powerful labels what does God see? How does God judge when it comes to those labels? The label homosexual, believe it or not, is a relatively new label in the course of human history. Uh, And in order to explain how that works, I want to tell you a little bit about my granddad. My granddad was a young man in the 1930s, okay? And he had sexual urges, feelings, and attractions. Hello, I'm here, aren't I? Okay, so... He was a typical man, right, okay? And, and he got married and he had kids and grandkids subsequently. But if, if my grandfather had run into another man who either had attraction to other men or if that man had been in a sexual relationship with another man, even though my grandfather in the 1930s might have been maybe repulsed or maybe he had his own thoughts or God thoughts about it, my grandfather wouldn't have thought of that other man as a homosexual, the label didn't exist. My grandfather would have simply looked at him as a man, just like him. And so the label homosexual and homosexuality is something that's relatively new. If, uh, if most of human history, the only labels that we had, we were people. And if you wanted to subcategorize people, you could subcategorize them into men and women. And that's been true throughout much of human history. But Today, fast forward to today, um, it's got a different punch, does it? Doesn't it? I mean, the the label has a lot going on with it. I don't know if you know this, but uh, the word, the terms homosexual and heterosexual were first used in the late 1800s by medical doctors. And what the medical doctors were uh, using these terms for was to describe people who pursued sexual pleasure without any concern for making babies. So a heterosexual was someone bent on pursuing sexual pleasure without making babies. And it was considered, believe it or not, in the 1800s, deviant. A homosexual was someone who pursued sexual fulfillment and pleasure with someone of the same sex, again, without any concern for making babies. And again, it was also considered deviant in the 1800s. And so these terms kind of got thrown around and nobody really picked them up until about the 1960s. And from here on out, fast forward to today, when someone uses the term homosexual, they are using that term not just as a label, but as a statement of their identity, in other words, in our culture today in 2012, if someone says, I'm a homosexual, what they're saying is, I am gay, that's who I am in my core identity. For them, it's a statement of identity. It's why uh, I think it's funny to have those kind of labels like this when it comes to identity because uh, when you're trying to define who you are by what you want, that's like hitting a moving target. What we want as human beings changes so frequently and can be so fickle. You know, one label really doesn't do it. One label isn't enough to describe any one person. But this is why the LGBT community and the Christian community keep missing each other in America, by the way. If you've never thought about this, I have. Christians talk about the stuff that's inside the bags and, say, and, and want to say, well, you know, there's sinful behavior, desires, attitudes, etc. But everybody in the LGBT community, all they hear is, you're saying I'm wrong. You're saying all of this is wrong. You're condemning me, the person, because this is my identity. And the two keep missing each other. I want you to understand today, like I said in the first two weeks of the sermon series, that God created sex and sexuality, People created labels and categories. And if you read the pages of the Bible, the categories and labels aren't something that's on God's radar screen. And so in order to make this really clear, I've got an object lesson. You're like, way cool. I know. This is like going to children's church, only we're talking about sex. (laughs) (laughs) That could be scary, couldn't it? (laughs) So I have a bag here labeled homosexuality. So, let's see what's in the bag. We've got something here called behaviors. Hmm, does God have anything to say about behaviors or sexual behaviors in the Bible? Yeah, I think he does. Let's see, we've got something else called physical health, your body. Does God have anything to say about your body, physical health? Yeah, he has some things to say about that in the Bible. Fantasy, ooh. Yep, Which where your mind goes and what you're thinking of. God has something to say about that. Uh, Let's see, choices. Oh, man, that's like Book of Proverbs all right there. Memories, yeah. What else do we got in the bag? Marriage. Does God have anything in the Bible to say about marriage? Yeah. What else do we have? Desire. Oh, he has things to say about that. Hopes. And let's see, there's one more thing in the bag. Relationships. So for all of these things that are inside the bag, God talks about all this stuff. Well, now let's see what's in the heterosexual bag. Let's see. We've got behaviors. That looks familiar. Physical health. Huh. Relationships. Choices. Fantasy. Uh, Memories. What? I thought the bags would be different. Hopes. Marriage. Desire. I want you to see that no matter what label you smack on the outside of the bag, The contents of the bag are the same, and God has a lot to say about the stuff that's inside the bag. The problem is, culturally, we get all hung up on the labels without really getting to the important stuff, which is what God talks about, which is what's inside the bag. So let's get going along those lines. We get so obsessed about labels, and we don't see the person. God doesn't roll that way. And in order to to illustrate this, I want to visit a story that's tucked away in the pages of the Old Testament. It's a story about a woman, and not just any woman, but a woman who lived in the wrong society, in the wrong city, and she had the wrong profession, all right? Uh, She was a Canaanite woman living in the city of Jericho. Now, uh, Scripture and archaeology tell us that the people of that culture had little regard for human life. They were steeped in some of the most shocking practices imaginable, right? These Canaanites practiced incest. If you don't know what that is, ask your mom and dad. They practiced bestiality. They uh, institutionalized the sexual abuse of women. And if that wasn't enough, they did child sacrifice. It was a culture that was really messed up according to archaeologists. I mean, they had some really funky things going on culturally. Well, God had commanded Joshua and the Israelites to march on the city of Jericho and to destroy it completely and kill everyone in the city. That's another sermon for another day, right? But like any good general, Joshua sent spies into the city of Jericho to kind of scope out the city defenses. What's going on? What are the weak points? You know, how am I going to take this city? And that's the important part of what I want to talk about today. It's found in Joshua chapter 2. So Joshua sends these two spies who pose as travelers into the city of Jericho. And they're, they're looking around. They're kind of counting soldiers. They're scoping out the walls, the gates, the important things of the city. And somebody recognizes they don't belong there. They're spotted. Well, a woman takes them in and hides them in the roof of her apartment, in the roof of her house. And it wasn't just any woman, it was a woman named Rahab, who happened to be a prostitute. So she hides them up in the attic, she tells the city officials, oh, oh, you're looking for those spies, are you? Yeah, um, they left. I saw them going down the road out to the west. You might, if you leave now, you might catch them. Oh, thank you, Rahab. Boom, off they go. Just like a scene from one of the movies. And then before everyone goes to bed, she goes up, and this is, what, this is the section, verse 8. Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up to the roof to talk with them. I know the Lord has given you this land. That's a powerful statement. I mean, think about that. Here's a woman. She's not an Israelite. She's Canaanite. She's a Canaanite prostitute living in that culture. And she acknowledges from the get-go, I know the Lord has given you this land. What else does she say? Um, We're all afraid of you, she said. Everyone in the land is living in terror, for we've heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. They've heard about what God did in Egypt. And we know that what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed, no wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. And the kicker, for the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. In evangelistic evangelistic training, In this moment in Rahab's life, we call this being ready to take the next step. She's acknowledging there is a God, you guys represent this God, and I know He's real. She's ready to take the next step, and apparently the spies that are there do that with her. There's a conversation that takes place that's not in Scripture, but we know that they promise her, if you put a scarlet cord around the window of your house, window of your apartment outside the city wall, when the moment comes and we're rushing into the city, you and anyone you gather in this place will be spared, will be delivered, all right? And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. And in, verse, in chapter 6, this is what the text tells us. Then, verse 24, the Israelites burned the town and everything in it. Only the things made from silver, gold, bronze, or iron were kept for the treasury of the Lord's house. So Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, and her relatives who were with her in the house. Because she had hidden the spies Joshua sent to Jericho in the kicker. And she lives among the Israelites to this day when they were writing this, Rahab was still living. And people could go, yeah, you know, Rahab. Now, according according to the Mosaic law, what do you do with a prostitute? You stone her to death. But that's not what happens to Rahab. In being delivered from the city of Jericho, apparently she undergoes a transformation, a life transformation. We know from the Bible that she chooses to eventually marry, and she has a son. Do you know what her son's name is? Boaz, who features prominently in another book of the Bible called Ruth. She has grandchildren, among whom are David, the king of Israel, and Jesus, the savior of the world, from a Canaanite prostitute. Go figure, God looked past the label and saw a person. And God, when, God uh, when she responded to God's act of deliverance, God gave her a new life and a better future. And this is something God does consistently. God does not require people to shed their labels as a prerequisite for experiencing his grace or his deliverance. But on the other side... In the transformative side, he empowers them to walk away and to shed those very labels. All right? We see this most clearly in the life and teachings of Jesus. And Jesus, by the way, is not silent about marriage or sex. In Mark chapter 10, there's this very powerful teaching from Jesus. And this is, this is what he says. I'm going to read the whole section. This is Mark chapter 10. He's teaching about marriage and divorce. And this is what he says. Then Jesus left Capernaum and went down to the region of Judea and into the area east of the Jordan River. And once again, crowds gathered around him. And as usual, he was teaching. Some Pharisees came out and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Now, there was a debate. And some people among the Jewish rabbis said, well, you know, if you just give her a letter and you do the whole thing and it's signed off and sealed, you know, just divorce. It's okay. Okay. And then there was another group that said, oh no, are you kidding me? You should treat your wife better than that. You can't just write her off with a letter of her certificate and go through the channels. The only reason you should be able to get divorced from your wife is if she's committing adultery on you. If she's in a sexual relationship with someone else, then, then you can walk away. Then you can do the divorce proceedings. So they're trying to get him to choose sides like they always did. And once again, Jesus doesn't even pick aside What he says elevates the whole discussion, and that's what he does in this chapter. Jesus answered them with a question. What did Moses say about the law of divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded. He wrote this command only as a concession to your hard hearts. That had to have gone over well, don't you think? that had to be an endearing statement. Let's make Jesus king. Um, But God made them, and look what he says next. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Jesus is saying this. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Later, when he was alone with his disciples in the house, they brought up the subject again, and he told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone commits adultery against her, and if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. The point that I want you to draw out from this passage, and some of you, you know, if you've got divorce in your background, you're like, what's going on? Well, talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about it, all right? But one thing is clear. Jesus takes marriage And he goes and reaches back to Genesis, and he says, marriage is important. Marriage is from God, and marriage is between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, and that's what marriage is. Jesus says this. Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus, the loving and accepting person, and that's how he defines it, all right? Um, Not only does he do that, but he elevates the conversation and the discussion about sexuality. It's not just about behaviors, with Jesus, it's about something more. It's about what's on the inside of the bag. It's not just about what you do. And so he says that in Matthew chapter 5. Listen to his teaching here. You've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's not enough just to check your sexual behaviors and impulses, Jesus is saying. You gotta purify your mind. Hey guys, if you're undressing her in your mind... You're committing adultery. So Jesus takes the standards, the rules, and he elevates them. And it's almost like he makes them harder. You're like, well, what's that all about? Well, Jesus takes sin and sexual sin very seriously. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. The Jesus I know from the Bible, he was loving and accepting. And you know what? You're exactly right. He was. And that's why he's so different from some religious people today. Everybody that Jesus encountered who had a label, especially a bad label, he wasn't afraid of the label. He wasn't afraid that they were a tax collector or a prostitute or a Samaritan. That didn't bother him. He took water from a well from a Samaritan woman who clearly had a sordid sexual past. Didn't bother him. And so let's wade into that for a minute, all right? All of the people that Jesus encounters in the New Testament that had some kind of condemning label, he offers them love and acceptance. But every single one of them, on the receiving end of that kind of forgiveness and love and mercy, what happens to them? They change. They're transformed. Every single one of them. It's weird. The woman who had the sordid sexual past, who washed his feet and dried it with her hair, is later counted among the closest of his disciples. The wicked scoundrel from Jericho who extorted money from all of his fellow citizens and neighbors, Zacchaeus, the wee little man, the scoundrel, changed. He stands up after having Jesus at his house and he says, I'll pay back people four times what I took from them. The proof's in the pudding. And... The woman caught in adultery, whose public stoning Jesus stops, when the woman, when he's releasing the woman, he says to her, go and what? Go and what? Sin no more. Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus, loving and accepting, said those words. See, Jesus, God loves us so much, he's not content for us to stay in patterns, in behaviors and attitudes that are outside his ways because his ways are best. It's not an issue of right, wrong, good, you know, it's, it's an issue that God's ways are the best way to live life because God designed life to be lived after all. And when God looks at people, he sees people, not a label. And so he sees people that he loves. He sees people that he died for. He sees people that he wants to rescue and deliver. He sees people that he wants to give a new life and a better future. So let me ask a question, church. Would you be willing to come under the authority of scripture and affirm what god teaches about sex and sexuality and when god says something's good affirm that it's good and when god says no whether you agree with it or not whether you like it or not you just go what i do yes sir god there are all kinds of things god has in the bible that are consistent and clear and i go ah you know if i were the master of the universe i'd throw the dial to the left but i'm not And when I say that Jesus is my king, it means that when I bump up against things that I may not like or I may think are intolerant or all those those other kinds of things, I just go, yes, sir, God. If you say no, yes, sir. All right, so that's my first question. My second question is, would you be willing to see a person and not a label? For those of you that are older, let me put it to you this way. Let's say, for example, that Moving into the apartment or the house next to you is a same-sex couple one day, Dave and Gary. Would you be willing not just to see a label, but to see them as people? Would you be willing to do that? Now, for those of you that are younger, would you be willing to realize that tolerance is not the same thing as love and forgiveness? Would you be willing to know, acknowledge that in the Bible, when God forgives and when God offers forgiveness to someone, there's a clear expectation that that person walks a new life of forgiveness? It transforms them. And so, would you be willing to see a person and not a label? And the next time that you encounter a homosexual, the next time you encounter an addict, the next time, God forbid, you encounter a redneck? (laughs) Or you encounter a Republican or God forbid a Democrat? Or wait a minute, I got that wrong, right? You encounter a Democrat or God forbid a Republican? Would you be willing to see past the label and see a person? Would you be willing to see past the label and see a person, the next homeless man or woman you encounter? Who knows? God might use you, just like he did those two spies in the city of Jericho, to give someone an opportunity to respond to God's greatest gift of deliverance made possible through the death and resurrection of his son. Who knows? God might use you that very way.